Welcome to the preaching ministry of Nest Baptist, where we seek to equip people to love God and love others. Whether you are a longtime follower of Jesus or are exploring what faith in Him might look like, we are glad you're here. It is our prayer that by listening to this message, you may better understand who God is, what He has done for you, and what that means for your life. May all of this lead to the worship of God and be for His glory. Matthew 5, 21 to 26, it says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. If so, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. We are back in... in uh Matthew chapter 5, and as we're going through this great sermon that Jesus preached, uh, he's starting to get into some uh, kind of the nitty-gritty details of exactly what it was that God had taught them so long ago and what, uh, and what he's teaching his disciples. And one of the things that we saw last week was that Jesus did not come to bring a different message, uh, but rather he came to fulfill the message that was already there and to show what the message was really all about in the first place. And so what we have before us today is Jesus giving a sermon on the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not murder. If you were to take those few words and uh, to explain them, this is the way Jesus would talk about it. What did that commandment really mean? Because the teachers of the law had made it into a very literal command. And what Jesus is saying here is that it's not just literally murdering somebody that is in view here, but it goes beyond that. Someone that will get you in trouble in the judgment uh, if, this is, uh, if this does take place, but also where is the intent? Where does the intent lie behind this kind of an action? And also this intent is worthy of judgment, not just the action, but the intent. And so this is a really convicting passage. And we can read it and think, and I'm sure that you've read through this passage many times and you've wondered at it and we've probably all felt at some point, am I guilty of this? Uh, it's convicting. You know, we can read it and think really, like, am I really in danger of going to hell if I get angry? Because that's what it seems to be that Jesus is saying here. Like, we have all been angry at people in the past. Maybe you're angry with somebody right now. We should all be sitting here this morning reading this, maybe with our hearts racing a little bit. Because this is no joke. So let's ponder this for the next 30 minutes. It's so good for us to come together, I think, once or twice a week and to hear the call of righteousness of God on our lives. Because He is always refining our character and our actions as we gather together with His Word at the center. It is so good for us to consider these things what is God's righteousness and what does he call us to, to be mindful and to meditate upon these commandments? Now remember that the Jewish leaders had been interpreting this very literally. 
Don't physically murder anybody and you'll be okay. Like, you get to the end of your life and you look back and you say, hey, at least I never murdered anybody. Living my whole life and not once did I murder a single person. I must be acceptable to God. I mean, could that really be all that the sixth commandment required? I mean, really? Like, think about it. Like, common sense and logic should tell us that this commandment must mean a whole lot more than that. And so, let's look at what the hope is that we have to be able to do anything about the state of our hearts, because Jesus gets at that in this passage as well. And also the relationship that we have with other people that is so important. And I think it was good, the uh, responsive reading that we had this morning from Proverbs was just uh, very, very poignant to what it is that we're talking about this morning. And even the way in which our relationship with one another affects our worship of God, it affects the vertical relationship that we have in our worship and our prayer life. So we will do that by looking at three links in these verses. First of all, the link between anger and murder, the link between relationships and worship, and the link between relational strife and judgment. So let's begin with the link between anger and murder. And this is where Jesus begins in verses 21 to 22. <clears throat> when he says, you've heard it said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus begins this section by saying, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And then he goes on to say, but I say to you. So it looks like you've heard something said, you've heard how it was taught, but I am saying to you. So Jesus is going to do this a lot over the upcoming passages. He's going to say, you've heard it said, but I say, that's kind of the theme that runs over the next number of passages. He's going to take an Old Testament commandment, and he is going to explain to them what it meant in its fullest meaning. He's going to sort of blow it up and explain it to them, the actual meaning of what this commandment was. And the reason he's doing this is not because he has a problem with what Moses said, but he has a problem with what the teachers of the law had narrowed it down to be meaning. They had given the commandments their own interpretation, and their interpretation was usually wrong. Now, he knows the disciples are aware of this wrong teaching, and so he must correct it in their understanding so that they can move forward as his disciples as kingdom of heaven people. They have to get relationships right. What's happening in their heart has to be made right to move forward and to take that kingdom forward. Because like I said, it's actually common sense and logic that should lead us to understand this concept of not murdering someone being more than just a successful, completed act. It must mean more than that. Like, I mean, if you just think about it, imagine if you're on the road, you're on the road to go and murder someone. And I hope this never happens to you, but just imagine this with me. You know, you've had a long dispute with this person and you've been coming up with a plan for years of how you're going to end their life. And then one day you're listening to a true crime prod podcast about an unsolved murder that happened years ago that the police have never been able to solve. And that gave you the perfect means of murdering this person and hopefully getting away with it. The podcast explained in great detail how this murder happened and why the police couldn't ever find them. 
And so now you know how you're going to do it, and you're on your way to their house, but a funny thing happens when you break into their house. You find them laying on the floor. They're already dead with what seems to have been a massive heart attack just before you arrived. Are you innocent of murder? I mean, the Jewish teachers of the law would say, technically, yes, you didn't actually do it. But there is something so insidious in your heart that regardless of what you have done, it's still there. It's not gone. It's still there, and it's still the same motivating factor. Jesus says, you are liable to judgment by what happens on the inside. That's true justice. I mean, that's what true justice would actually look like. But how in the world would we ever accomplish that in our world that we live in? How could true justice that, intent, that has an intent that goes beyond just outward acts but goes to the inward where these things begin ever come to fruition? That's justice at a heart level that no court, no human effort or understanding could ever judge. But God can, and he does. And if our judges were judging rightly, this is how we would all judge one another, how we would all be judged here on earth. But it is impossible for mankind to judge the intent of the heart. But God can, and he does. It's not just the act of murder, or even wanting to take it to the extent of murder, but it's the hatred in a person's heart towards another person that will be judged, and that Jesus says is in danger of hell. Now Jesus teaching this, that murder is more than just a physical act, this is not new. It's just that it had been lost interpretation through the centuries because even if you look at the two greatest commandments that were given all the way back in the Old Testament, the ones that our church motto are based upon, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God, loving others. This is what all the commandments were based around. So that goes beyond just like a physical act, but this goes to a heart level. Loving God, a deep love, inward love that you have within your heart for God and for other people. That obviously meant a whole lot more than just not murdering people. It was hating someone as well, because this would be this insidious kind of an evil that would work itself into a community. If you had a community of people that harbored these kind of attitudes towards one another, and God knew that this could not be the way it would be for his people. His people had to be different, and so they had to be judged not just on the outward, but on the inward. Harboring anger towards someone is what Jesus is saying. Writing someone off even. Harboring anger towards someone. Saying, Raka, which is really writing a person off. This commandment had always been there. It had just been sort of lost. And Jesus gives three examples of how we can be guilty of this. So the first example that Jesus gives us in these verses is being angry with your brother is what he calls it. Which means when he says this, it means your family member, another community member, someone who is very close to you, particularly within your faith community or your family, someone close. This is, this is serious. The judgment for this is the same as the judgment for murder. And now we might say, well, well look at Jesus. I mean, Jesus got angry. Is he being hypocritical of this? Why would he be allowed to do this? But we can. I mean, Jesus even called some of the Pharisees and some of the teachers, he called them fools. He said raka towards them. He called them exactly what he says we are not supposed to say here on one occasion at least. So is this the same? Is Jesus being hypocritical? 
Well, I think we can see a drastic difference here if we begin to look below the surface. You see, Jesus was angry because of sin and injustice. That's what incited Jesus to anger. Now, when we look at ourselves and the things that we get angry about, the things that really bother us, the things that really put that thorn in our side about another person, is most often because of personal offense. It's our ego that causes our anger. And that was never the case with Jesus. If you looked at the times when Jesus was angry, when he said these words, it had nothing to do with personal offense about himself. It had to do with sin and injustice. It wasn't his ego that was getting in the way. I mean, look how Jesus dealt with those things. He was lied about. He was lied to. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was spit on. He was hung out to dry by his friends. And on and on and on, the way in which he was treated. He was always, in the midst of it, completely innocent. Always completely innocent of all of the accusations that came against him. 100% innocence. And yet Peter says he didn't retaliate. The words he said were, Father, forgive them when they did this to him. What would you do? What do we do? We're pretty quick to get angry when we have been wronged. It's like, they don't have the right to wrong me. I don't have the right to feel this way. What's happening is not right to me. For whom among us does this commandment not apply? Are you harboring this kind of anger towards somebody today? And as I say, these are like, when I, when I come against passages like this, like, I mean, every passage we really come to, like I sit at the foot of this teaching myself, and as I contemplate these passages in the week and in the weeks that are coming up to messages like this, it's a lot of soul-searching that goes on in my own life as well. And a lot of times of, of confession and sometimes having to go to people. Because this is serious stuff that Jesus is talking about here. And I'm not, I'm not immune to what it is that he is speaking of. And so this is our first instance that he shows, being angry with your brother. Second is insulting your brother. This is verse 22. Just this whole idea of insults. I mean, insults are pretty common in our society. In fact, they have entertainment shows on how well you can insult or roast another person. It's kind of become comedy or for fun. Maybe... We shouldn't be taking that kind of stuff so lightly, but Jesus says when you insult someone, like you're putting yourself over them and you're sort of saying like, I'm better than this person is and I'll show it through the words that I use and I will insult them and insulting them it belittles the other person and places ourselves on a higher pedestal. And so that begins this kind of insidious thing within our hearts as well. The third thing he says is calling someone a fool and that's where that word raka comes from. Ever called someone a fool? felt that they knew nothing, that they didn't have a clue, you know, particularly when they were saying something about you, it comes out pretty easy, doesn't it? You know, I don't think these are necessarily going, sometimes people say, you know, they're going in order of like least to greatest or greatest to least or anything like that. I think Jesus is simply giving examples of how easy it is to harbor hatred in our hearts towards someone and then what that leads to. That hatred and that anger toward another community member, he says, is liable to the fires of hell, is what he says. Now, the word that Jesus uses for hell here, and there's always particular and specific words that are used, it's the word Gehenna. 
And that is a place that everyone was aware of. When he said these words, their minds immediately went to what it was that Jesus was talking about. This word means the valley of Hinnom, and it was a ravine that was south of Jerusalem. Jeremiah talked about this place. He called this place Tophet, and it's where dead bones and ashes were thrown. During Jeremiah's time, some of the godless kings of Israel would have the people sacrifice their children there to the false god Molech. Josiah eventually came around and he stopped that practice. Now it became so detestable, this place where these child sacrifices would happen and where these, this worship of these false gods would happen, it eventually became a sewage and a garbage dump, garbage dump that was constantly burning. You could go and throw your refuse in it and it was a fire that never went out. It became a euphemism for the fire of hell. That place where the fire is never quenched. Not for a certain amount of time, but for all eternity. And that's the kind of punishment we are deserving of, is what Jesus is saying. You're liable to this type of punishment when you harbor things in your heart, when it begins to grow. Another thing we should make note of is that Jesus is not saying here that all sins are equal. You know, I think that that's something we may think when we, when we read this, that being angry with someone is the same as murdering someone. That's, that's not what Jesus is saying. It's not the same thing. We also can't say, well, I just murdered someone, and that would only be as bad as being angry with them, and obviously that would not be the case. But Jesus is saying that if you have this kind of anger and you don't do something about it, it will condemn you just as murdering someone will condemn you. All sin is punishable by death. Now, if you want to look into this more in more detail, the Westminster Catechism focuses on this in questions 150 to 152. It talks all about these kinds of sins, and it talks about the heinousness of all sin, but not all sin is the same. All sin deserves wrath, and it is only through the blood of Christ that sin and wrath are able to be taken away. So if you want to look into that whole concept more, Westminster Catechism, 150, 151, and 152, deal with it in great detail. But you see, what it's getting at is there is a progression from small sin to large sin. So often in our lives, we become comfortable with the small sin. We kind of let these things sit for a while. We don't do anything about it. And maybe we get further and further into it, and it just begins to grow and to grow and to grow. It goes from less heinous to more heinous. Some things, sometimes things start small, but they begin to grow like yeast in a batter. That's another illustration that Jesus would often use. There's a very clear line, I think, between anger and murder. They're not unrelated. A root of bitterness starts to grow in our hearts, and then what actions might that possibly lead to? It's like if murder was a tree. A tree always starts from somewhere. It doesn't just appear from nowhere. It's an acorn or a seed, and it grows into a tree. And that seed is the anger. Seed is the anger, and murder is the tree. And there is a clear line between the two. There is a relationship that exists. It was that seed that gave life to that tree. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to give you a tree planting illustration there. But I think we see this connection. These are not unrelated things but there is a line that exists between the two. There is a link between anger and murder that we need to take seriously. 
There's also a link, and this is what we've been referring to, and even what our responsive reading this morning was referring to, between our relationships that we have and our worship in verse 23 to 24. It says this, So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go, and first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So Jesus gives two illustrations here. He gives two illustrations that describe the way in which broken relationships affect us and affect our worship of God. Now, that's very interesting, and it's an important thought, one that we may not consider all that often. The relationship that we have here on a horizontal level with one another can have a profound effect on our relationship with God on a vertical level. And one of the most, you know, we see this numerous places as, you know, we saw it in Proverbs this morning. We see it here. We see it in 1 Peter chapter 3, a place where we see this very clearly, where Peter says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. hindered. So there is something that can happen in our relationships, even within our marriages, that could hinder our prayers. The relationships that we have with one another, hindering our worship and our prayer life with God. And here too, it's the same principle. Jesus shows how important vertical relations are in relation or horizontal relationships to the vertical relationship that we have with God and our prayer life. And so he first of all talks about reconciling with the brother that you have wronged, that you have wronged personally. The first illustration of the seriousness of being reconciled and making things right with a brother or a member of your community puts it into a worship context. He says, if you're at the altar and you're worshiping and you're offering your gifts to the Lord and you know in your mind that you have wronged someone, there's a broken relationship with a brother or a sister, stop what you're doing, first go and make it right before you just forget about it, put those things out of your mind, and just come to me as though nothing was wrong. Jesus says that's not the way that it happens. First go and make that, first go and make that thing right that is in your heart. Now this wasn't a convenient situation that's being talked about. Jesus is, is talking about this event that would happen three times a year. Three times a year you have to go to the temple in Jerusalem and you would make your offerings of worship. Now you would walk there from a far distance most times. Because, of course, not all Jewish people lived right in the city. They were scattered abroad, but no matter where you lived, you had to come together, and there wasn't a place to do this where everybody lived. So they came to Jerusalem. They brought all of their gifts, all of their worship. They came together. And Jesus is saying, when this happens, he says, stop what you're doing. When you know there's something wrong between you and someone else, stop what you're doing. Pack up all the sacrifices and all of the offerings that you brought with you, Walk all the way back home and make things right. Once you have made things right, you know, get your animals together, get everything that you are going to bring, get it back together, and then come back and worship me. Now, that could take many days of travel. So take this seriously. Jesus isn't saying this is a, a simple thing to do, and it's just like, you know, if you could just say, you know, sometimes a, a quick word to make things right, but sometimes it's going to take a great deal of effort in order to do this. A lot of effort, maybe a lot of prayer, maybe a lot of counsel with others so that, you know, how, how should I be making this right? Is this the right way to do this? You know, maybe it takes more, it requires more from us. 
Your relationship with your brothers and sisters affects your worship. Even Psalm 66, verse 18, it touches on this, a well-known psalm that said, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If I had cherished sin in my heart, you know, if I just let it sit there, I wasn't doing anything about it. I was just letting it sort of fester, leaving it to itself, trying to forget about it, trying to just put it out of my mind. The Lord would not have listened. You know, it's easy to get so busy in church work that we forget or we ignore the things that really matter. Rather than being concerned with integrity or purity or love, we take the easy road and we focus on work. Work can actually be the easy road. Our worship, in that regard, just becomes busy work. And when that happens, there's a spiritual dryness which accompanies it. Are you experiencing that dryness today? This may be something to ponder for you if that is the case. Always worthwhile pondering and thinking through, is this me? The relationship between our relationships and worship. And then finally, the relationship between similar but relational strife and judgment is where Jesus takes it in verse 25 to 26 that says this. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going out with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. For truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now the last contrast we see in this passage is that con contrast between strife with someone and judgment. Now as we saw in the last illustration, you had remembered that you had wronged someone. You remembered, oh yeah, I wronged someone, that's right. But in this, uh, in this illustration, there is someone that comes to you and says you have wronged them. So they've come to you. You have an accuser is what this is called. You wouldn't settle your problem with them. You refuse to acknowledge it. You said it's, maybe said it's not that big of a deal or I didn't do it. You deny it in some regards. And so they take you to court and the judge throws you in prison and you can't get out until the penalty is paid. Now, the kind of court that Jesus is talking about here is what's called a debtor's court, and it was very common in their culture. When you would default on your debts, you would be imprisoned until that debt was paid. And this is a normal way of strife in a relationship. You know, sometimes you are the one who is aware of it, and other times the other person is, and they come to you. In the first illustration, it was God's approval that was at stake. Would your worship be acceptable? In this illustration, it is God's judgment that is at stake. So someone is accusing you of something. What do you do? You know, this illustration shows us that when we refuse to reconcile with someone, it gets out of hand and it catches up to us. It gets very serious. And what causes us to not reconcile? Like, why, why wouldn't we just reconcile with someone? John Calvin says in his commentary that it's pride that we're too demanding of our own rights. We're blinded by a wicked love for ourselves so that even in the worst cases, we fool ourselves into thinking that we are right. It's pretty easy to justify our own behavior and our own rightness, isn't it? I know when I hear something, I know how hard it can be to take criticism and instantly, I think this is unjust. This is untrue. I'm looking to myself, I'm thinking that I'm right. Why am I right? 
knee-jerk reaction. I must be right, they must be wrong. Anybody else feel that way when you get a, you know, for being honest, you don't have to put up your hand, some of you are, but we feel that way. I think most of us, that's the, that's the knee-jerk reaction. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're talking about, I'm right. And sometimes that criticism received, it isn't completely accurate. You know, certainly, it's not 100% accurate all the time, but what I found over the years is that it is a mature, effective person that can take that criticism and hear it and admit to whatever truth there is in it. Because what I found is there's usually some nugget of truth that's contained within it. It could be almost totally wrong, totally unjust, but there's that small kernel of truth that's within it. Maybe they are 90% wrong, but there's 10%, or maybe it's only 5 or maybe it's only 1%. A nugget of truth that's in there that we need to hear. Are you able to hear that? Can you hear that and can you own that? Or are you so enamored with yourself that you were blind and oblivious to it? You see, those are the things that grow. That's the kind of thing that grows inside our hearts, and eventually that accuser will escalate it, and Jesus says sometimes to a judge. It's, it'll get very serious. And so all of these things Jesus has in view when it comes to the command not to murder. It goes so far beyond just that physical act that we were talking about. It's not just the physical act that condemns us, but it's the seed of the act that grows in the heart. That seed affects your worship of God and it even affects your eternal state if it is left undealt with. You must never allow these seeds to germinate in your life and specifically you know, here within the church and within our community. It destroys community, these kind of relationships, this kind of undealt with anger and hatred. It destroys your life. We must be reconciled to one another and it is so important to keep short accounts with each other. And that does take community. And as you grow together with a community, you become very connected with one another. Relationships start to grow on a deeper level and there's more opportunity for these kind of things to exist. If we always keep each other at sort of an arm's length distance, that's never really gonna happen. You know, it can be easy to come into a church and just kind of come in and then leave and never really get to know people or get involved and say, oh, I never deal with this or struggle with this in my faith community. But once you really start digging in and once you really start getting involved in building relationships with other people. These are the kind of things that will naturally happen in our human relationships. And so we need to be wary of it. That shouldn't scare us off from getting involved. It should drive us, I think, into deeper community, but having a real community. Because when there's reconciliation that happens with brothers and sisters, it is a beautiful thing and you'll come out of it stronger than we were before. So don't let this you know, scare you off from building deep, deeply connected relationships. Because there is hope in this. What is our only hope? We need hope badly. Because left on our own, we know what our knee-jerk reactions is and, and what we want to do. But Jesus has just painted a very vivid picture of what a predicament we are in. We've been thrown into a debtor's prison, is what he says. And I think we can all put ourselves into this position that we've been thrown into a debtor's prison and we're not able to be free until the debt that we owe has been paid in full. This is how we all start off. This is where we all begin life, thrown into a debtor's prison, unable to pay the, unable to pay the price, 
but not able to be freed until that price is paid in full. There was an accuser who came against you, and he has rightly accused you of wrongdoing. And so you're in prison and you're on your way to Gehenna. But how can we pay it off while we're in prison? What can we do about it? What can we do about this state that we find ourselves in? It's impossible. It's hopeless. We have no hope within ourselves to do anything about our position. No way of paying off this debt. Jesus is making this very clear. How will you pay the last penny? How will you work it off when you are there? And so what's the only way out? Someone will have to pay that debt for us. If you want out, someone else is going to have to pay that debt. Someone who isn't just a good person, but someone who is perfect. Someone who not only didn't have any thought of anger or harassment or hate in his heart, all of those things that are at the root of murder, but also was himself murdered. You see, your only hope is Jesus. He is the only one who can pay that debt that you owe. The only one who was murdered so that you, who are a murderer in your heart, would never have to die. So that the righteous wrath and anger of God against sin and ungodliness would be satisfied and you could be let out of prison and given the seal of his forgiveness and everlasting life. You see, when that happens to you, when you get that, you are able to love. You are able to love because you have experienced the most true, the greatest act of love that has ever been showed. You are able to put to death that pride that stops the strife that you experience in relationships, both horizontally and vertically. Jesus has done this for you. And he says he didn't do it to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. We see the unrelenting standards of the law, but we also see a Savior who has come to satisfy the law for us. But for that to happen, you must repent of your sin and embrace him as your Savior. The debt gets paid. You see, he came once as a Savior, but he is coming again as a judge. And will you be ready? There is no sacrifice for your sin that remains outside of Jesus. Scripture tells us to call on the name of your Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then, as you think about God's love for you, it fills your heart and it purges that seed of bitterness and anger and hate and pride and it causes us to ponder, where do I need to reconcile the strife that exists between me and my brother or sister or spouse or friend or church acquaintance or neighbor or boss or employee or relative or whoever it is? not to earn your release from prison, but because you have already been released and that love is filling you. He has given away, the hope is in Jesus, that we can be reconciled first of all to him and then to one another. When we've experienced that love, we are able to show it to those who are around us. Let's pray. Father, we are just so grateful for your love for us today, that we were hopeless in our own selves to do anything about our position about the state that we are in. But you came, and everything that we are guilty of, you received. You were murdered so that us, as sinners, as sinful people, murderers in our hearts, are able to be set free from the bondage that we are in, from the prison that we are in, and given eternal life. 
given life in Jesus Christ. We are so grateful for what we have in Him. And so, Father, I pray that for those who may be here this morning that have not experienced this freedom, this new life, Lord, that, that they would experience it today, that they would come to see the state that they are in and you as their hope and their Savior. And Lord, for the rest who are here today that have received that, I pray that this would revolutionize our relationships with one another, that we would be able to be reconciled to others because we ourselves have received the greatest reconciliation that has ever been given. And when we get that, when that sinks into our hearts, how can we do anything but be reconciled to our brothers and sisters who are around us? So Lord, may we be those in this community that would have deep relationships with one another. We wouldn't be afraid of building into one another's lives and, and building deep relationships with each other. And also that we would keep short accounts with each other, lovingly being able to reconcile when there is strife, or anger, or even hatred in our hearts towards other people, that we would be quick to deal with this, to not allow this root of bitterness to surface in our lives. We can do this because you have done it for us, and we are so grateful today. And so we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening in to the preaching ministry of Nest Baptist, where we seek to equip people to love God and love others. If you would like more information about what we do and why we do it, please check out our website at nestbaptist.com where you will find links to all of our ministries, weekly updates, contact information for our staff, and a button to donate. Your donations go to making resources like this possible and helps us in many other ways in reaching our surrounding community with the good news of Jesus Christ. So thanks for listening. We hope to see you soon.